He said, they have shaken, quote, they have shaken the pillars of a commercial empire that circled the globe. I would do his accent if I could. You might guess who I'm talking about. Or actually, you wouldn't at all, nor would I. But the, the point that he makes in this speech is that they, meaning the uh, government that he was a part of, have shaken the pillars of a commercial empire that circled the globe. He struck at their authority, what today would be called credibility, and he said, they tell you that your dignity is tied to it. Your dignity. You know what dignity means. It's the pride in yourself. And he said, this dignity is a terrible encumbrance to you, for it has of late been ever at war with your interests, your equity, and every idea of your policy. And again, speaking of the government, and it was. Their dignity was actually robbing them. They could have been making a lot more money than they were. That's why he says equity. Your interests, it actually caused them to lose a great deal in their policy, which was stupid. This empire, this worldwide empire, was acting with folly. And it was because, as this man said, and he got it right, but no one listened to him. He said it right in their parliament. That this was because of your dignity. It's because of your pride. And in this speech, where am I? Oh, I forgot to do that. Is that why it's not up? Sorry, Alan. That was my fault. I was like, where are my slides? All right, we're good now, yeah? Okay. The distempered vigor and insane alacrity with which you are rushing to your ruin. Edmund Burke, 1774. Uh, this was on a debate that was going on in British Parliament concerning the American question. Things had gotten very um, uh, somewhat rebellious here in America. And it was in question to the repeal of the tea duty or not, which they did not. And ended up being the Boston Tea Party and... You know what happened from there. But Edmund Burke was talking about something here that we're going to talk about today, which is deception. And deception caused this government to lose a whole lot. I mean, you would think they would have lost the Americas eventually anyway. There's no way that an island could have ruled this entire continent. But what they did was they, they caused the, the uh, revenue from the colonies and also the, the friendship of the colonies to just completely be destroyed. And they rushed headlong into it. They're deceived. But, you know, people in the revolution were deceived. We're all deceived. But what happened to them is that when all the signposts went up and told them that this is the wrong way, they kept going. And that's the title today which is God will use um, deception as discipline. Discipline causes pain. It, it does because we're in a moral world. And if you don't have the truth, you can't act morally. And you can't act rightly. And this is God's universe. And if we don't act rightly, we suffer for it. Every human being does. 
So when God throws more deception on you, it's God throwing more pain on you. And it's not vindictiveness on his part. It's God yelling to us or to the unbeliever to wake up. So we're going to start in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 8, again, just to get our bearings, and then we'll see uh, today how God can add to deception. Let's uh, open up in prayer and thank God for our time together, for his word, for the reality and the uh, grace of his word that shows us his truth. And though we don't know all truth, none of us do, the Bible is clear enough to get all of us what we need to know. And so with humility is how we learn it. So with humility, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. You are our Father in heaven. Your kingdom is coming and your will will be done. So we fathers, your children, caught between two worlds the world of our flesh, the world of the spirit, the world of the earth, the world of heaven. We, however, have been delivered from the old world, but we are still in it. We have been delivered from our flesh, but yet we are still in that. And so we have choices to make, Father, sometimes that are very difficult. And you are always with us and in us and around us. So as we face the various trials that we do, as we face the um, trial of just understanding the truth with our own limitations, we rely upon you and upon your spirit for clarity and understanding. And we ask, Father, that you do so, so that we will not be deceived as much of the world is. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this uh, we've been looking at unrighteousness, which is wickedness, and wickedness or unrighteousness dulls or dullens good thinking. Um, as I'm uh, hearing or listening to this book about uh, the folly of the British government in reference to or vis-a-vis the American colonies, it's amazing. You know, I, I've known some, but I haven't remotely known all that much about the decisions that were made. And, you know, how could people be so unwise I'll say stupid. I'll just say it. And, you know, but how often have I been stupid? So how? why is it that any of us can be? And it's because as deception, as we gain deception, we get into further deception until we correct our deceptions. Uh, and deception leads to wickedness. It leads to sin. This is something that we've seen that when planted within us is deception concerning any subject, concerning anything in life, uh, that deception will lead to sin. It will lead us to think that we can do things that we can't or do things that we shouldn't or that we're the ones who are going to get away with it and stuff like that. Or in the case of the British government at that time, that my dignity is all that matters. When that's not really true. Right? Christ said to us, the greatest of you is your servant. My dignity doesn't always matter. What matters is the truth. But I can lose sight of that. Deception will always lead to sin. And sin leads to being dull. Dull in my mind, which leads to more deception. So, to avoid that uh, staircase, if you will, descending down into the ultimate of deceptions, 
we have to see what the Bible tells us about it, and that's what we're doing. We've been looking at deception. We've been defining it, looking at it in terms of the biblical passages concerning it. And now we're ready to see, uh, now we are ready to see it as a tool that God uses for discipline. And so in our passage, verse 8 says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, is of course the Antichrist, with all power and signs and false wonders. And so he has the ability by Satan, Satan's the one empowers him, to um, exercise power that will dazzle signs and wonders, which are miracles. And with all deception, all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Now you see that in verse 11. And, no, well, and continue in verse 12, because that's the rest of the sentence. In order that, it shows us the purpose. God sends this deluding influence, or strong delusion, is another perfectly good uh, translation of that, sends upon them a strong delusion so that they'll believe what is false. In order that, here's the purpose, that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Now this judgment here is, not necessarily a reference to the final judgment or the great white throne judgment because, I mean, that's a foregone conclusion. I don't think Paul would be mentioning that in light of the fact that we see here that they are unbelievers, which will be reaffirmed today for us. Uh, they're unbelievers who are definitely destined, uh, sadly, destined for final judgment. But this is a further deluding influence so that they may be judged. And this judgment is a discipline upon them. They have rejected the gospel. They've rejected, as we'll see in a second, this worldwide proclamation of the gospel. Uh, much more um, fantastic, I'll say, than it is now. Uh, the gospel is worldwide now, but you're not hearing it from angels in heaven or you're not hearing it from uh, indestructible men uh, who are standing against opposition and cannot be destroyed in a very supernatural way. We're not seeing it, or, but at their time in the tribulation, they will see the gospel proclaimed in a very supernatural way worldwide. And they still say no. And so God brings judgment by what? Well, he could bring judgment by, you know, how has God disciplined nations before? Of which we know the most is Israel. Um, you know, it, it could be a, a plague. It could be an invasion by another people. It could be a famine, a drought, something like that. But in this case, it's not a physical thing that comes against them. It's an actual deception in the mind. But they both have the same uh, result, which is pain. You see, in a moral universe, if I'm deceived, I can't get by very well. In a moral universe, if I don't know the truth, I will eventually be a very miserable person, which will cause more deception, which will cause more misery. The more deceived I am, the more miserable I'm going to be in this world. And hence, it is a source of discipline. Now, the Antichrist brings deception and wickedness with power, signs, and false wonders. Uh, now, these 
deceptions, as we've seen, are here today. We saw it uh, both uh, yesterday and Sunday in Romans chapter 1 that God sends, uh, you know, hands them over, which is the unbeliever, to um, the ways of ungodliness or the ways of unrighteousness, which are all kinds of sins that lead them to destruction and, and discipline in a painful life. And uh, so the deceptions are, that we see in the tribulation are here now. It's just that the one who is the head deceiver during the tribulation on earth has actually a great amount of power and signs and miracles and false wonders. So here's some deceptions of the New Testament. Just where this word that's used uh, of um, deception in our passage that is used in other passages of the New Testament. There's the deception of wealth in Matthew 13:22 and Matthew 4:19. The deception of sin in Hebrews 3.13. The deception of false doctrine, which Paul calls there an empty deception in Colossians 2.8. And the deception of desire in Ephesians 4.22. And you can cross-reference these with what we saw in Romans chapter 1, where God hands them over. Like, the, they're all here. Just uh, desire and sin would talk about the fleshliness, the lusts, the desires, the passions of man, where in hands over what God, the, the revelation of God and God's gospel that they've received, which leads to life. They've said no. They hand that in, or as we saw in Romans 1, they exchange it for a lie. And these things are lies. And why are they? Well, they're all promising something, Right? Why would, why do, in Christians included, why are they in the pursuit of wealth? Because, well, what they have with God is not good enough. Right? God's not sufficient for them. So they need more stuff. Uh, sin. God's not sufficient. So I need, I need more sin. Now all of us are sinners, but here we're talking about the pursuit of it. That we're actually mastered by it. And many Christians are. And look, well, I'm not here to condemn you in the areas that you're mastered by sin. I'm here to, with God's word to help set you free. And ignoring the problem is not going to set you free. It's just going to prolong it. That where the freedom is in the trust and obedience and not being deceived. In that area that you are mastered, what is it that you don't see? Right? This is something, you can ask me, because I, I don't know your heart, but God does. Have you asked him? Have you legitimately and honestly and earnestly asked God to help you, to reveal to you? Have you searched his word to find the answer so that you're no longer deceived? But how many Christians are just putting that stuff off? Because why? Well, they actually prefer the sin. It's a deception. And you can deceive yourself for decades with these things. False doctrines and desire. You know, the desire, why, you know, why would I pursue desire? Because God's not enough. He doesn't fulfill me. He gives me some, but he's not good enough. And it gets right back to the Garden of Eden where Satan said, has God really said? He just doesn't want you to know good and evil like he does. See, he's holding back. 
Yeah, he's given you this fine garden to live in, but has he really given you everything? And when we're pursuing these, the answer to what we're saying is no. He hasn't. Now, these things are all around now. You wouldn't be warned about them. There are the passages there, and there are dozens more. But that's a good summary, by the way. And now in the tribulation, see, Deb, you weren't looking, so you have to see my, my animation is what they call it. Uh, it's now in really tiny print that you can't see. Promoted by a miraculous world ruler. In the tribulation, not now, but in that seven-year period, these things, they haven't changed. You read the book of Revelation, this is what people are after. The whole thing hasn't changed. It's just that now the restraint is removed that we read about in our passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. The restraint is removed. And now the Antichrist, without any restraint, can rule the world with his powers, with his miracles, empowered by Satan, and he can exercise as a world ruler because today things are restrained by freedom. You know, the, the restrainer is God, but the things that God uses, in my estimation, you know, others would disagree with me, but no one would disagree with me that the restrainer is God. In 2 Thessalonians 2.7, the restrainer is God. But he restrains, in my opinion, by many things. Freedom. I don't have to do these things. But what if I live in a world where there's a world ruler who says, if you don't take the mark of the beast, I am going to kill you. Well, now things are different. I could be an unbeliever in this world and not take the quote-unquote mark of the beast, whatever that is. You know, I don't have to dive headlong into the certain deceptions. But it will be then that someone in power, the man in power, the beast, the man of lawlessness, the man of perdition, the son of perdition, is going to force people. And he has the power to do it. No, well, he has the power. He doesn't have the power. I should, sorry, rephrase back up. He doesn't have the power to force anybody to do it, but he has the power to kill. And God allows him to. We see in Revelation 6 that heaven's filled with all the people that he killed. And they're asking God, when are you going to avenge our blood? And God says, hold on, just wait a few chapters, I'll do it. <laughs> but um, So <clears throat> now we have the freedom. Now there's the church. The church then... There'll be no uh, Christian TV during the revelation, uh, tribulation. Sorry, There'll be no uh, public Christian churches anywhere. It won't be allowed. See, now the, now, like our messages are on, on the Internet, whoever, all five people that are... No, there's more than that, but we thank you for listening. But, uh, you know, then there'll be zero people listening because it won't be there. So he claims to be God. Now these people, and we may sympathize. There's one thing I want you to try to do and then not do, is sympathize with the unbelievers during the tribulation. Because first and foremost, they see somebody who can perform signs and miracles. They see somebody who is killed and then raises or is raised from the dead. They're awestruck. Any of us would be. To see an honest-to-God miracle and know it's not some kind of parlor trick or magic trick. And they're going to ask themselves, well, as anybody would. 
If you see somebody do something miraculous, like call fire down from heaven at a word, you're going to ask yourself, well, where does he get his power from? Is he an alien? Is he an angel? Is he God? But then here's the other thing. With, because Jesus did miracles, correct. So we have the Antichrist doing miracles, but then the Antichrist says his message. Right? He says, he speaks. He, he, uh, he boasts of uh, miraculous things. It's when he's prophesied in Daniel, he has a big old mouth that boasts and boasts and boasts of things. And so on top of seeing the miracles, then you see the message behind the man. And you also see his actions. He murders Christians. This is clear. Anyone who doesn't follow him, I'll call them Christians in the tribulation. Anyone who doesn't follow him, he murders. He murders Jews. He's very anti-Semitic. The most. He demands worship. He will not allow any dissent at all. People are going to see this. He lusts for power. He wants all power. And so, yeah, okay. So he can do miracles. He can get like fire to come from heaven and do all kinds of stuff. That is really amazing. And yet, he murders people, demands worship as God, and allows zero dissent. Um, should I still be deceived by him? And it shows us, some, shows us something. Uh, powers should not deceive when the message of the powerful is spoken. Any power that anybody has. You know, we're often, um, I, don't, I don't know about often. I think the older you get, the less impressed you're with people. But say you're younger and you're like, ah, oh, you know, people become impressive, you know, because uh, you want to make your way in the world and you see others who have or you're impressed with uh, a celebrity or someone in your life. Maybe it's someone who is truly impressive. Um, and we can be impressed with things, impressed with people. And yet they're going to speak. And this is what Jesus said in a way that um, you'll know them by their fruit. All right, so he warned us of false teachers, Paul, all the writers, you know, warned us about false teachers. And they said, basically said to us, just wait and see what they do. Wait and see what they say. And you just have to wait. Now, if it's God, if it's Jesus Christ who has miracles and then he speaks and he does and he works, you say to yourself, yeah, those miracles are only, actually, the miracles start to pale in comparison to the message that comes from him. The message of eternal life and love and a reality with God in eternity and salvation and justification through him and his cross and his sacrifice, like all of this. You know, his miracles go with his message. But what about someone who is, you know, has power even on a human level, has power, but then they speak and their message is selfish, self-aggrandizement. It's nothing but pride. It's folly. And all of a sudden you say, yeah, you know, they have power. Maybe they have incredible looks and they have incredible strength and they're incredibly smart. But in all honesty, they're incredibly stupid because they're just filled with themselves. 
You see, power is one thing, but when you hear the message of the powerful, that's when you're not deceived, if you have truth. All of us may be deceived for a little while. See, in the tribulation, once the populace sees the power of this one, and they say, well, yeah, that's impressive, but then they hear him speak and see what he does, they should turn their back on him. So let's go look at him. Because he is a powerful creature, uh, man. He's not a creature. He's a man, which is a creature. Revelation 13. Go to Revelation 13, verse 1. Revelation 13, 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. The sea, Mediterranean Sea, in references, refers to the Gentiles. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head, on his heads were blasphemous, blasphemous names. Sorry. All right. So, you know, there's meaning to these. We've touched on them. The uh, um, sorry, the ten horns are ten kings. Uh, the seven heads are going to represent seven eras in the Gentile empires, which the seventh head is going to be the last one, and so on. Um, and, you know, whether for, the, for class today, we, if you're wondering about those, we can, uh, you can either email me or you can go look them up yourself online. If you find out what they are and you're confused still, just get in touch with me. But for today, uh, for the sake of time, we can't go into that. But what we just want to do is look at him. And the beast, uh, verse 2, which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And those are the three other beasts that are in Daniel chapter 7 that uh, speak of Babylonian, Persian, and Greek empires. And this means that he has the cultural, intellectual, uh, manifestations, even political manifestations of all those empires that he has borrowed from. And the dragon gave him power. The dragon is Satan. The dragon gave him power and his throne and uh, and his throne and great authority. So he's empowered, just like we saw in Second Thessalonians two. He is empowered by Satan. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and this here would speak of as we continue to read that he had actually been killed. And his fatal wound was healed. This represents the fact that Satan somehow had resurrected him. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. So this, the point that I want to make here out of all of this is that the people of the tribulation are amazed at him. He has powers. He has culture. He has power. And the fact that he was killed, this would be publicly uh, made uh, obvious, and that he's raised from the dead. And he, they're amazed. Look, anybody would be amazed. Anybody would be. However, but then they learn, which we continue, verse 4. They worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. They worship the devil now because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. And this is half of the tribulation. 
was given to him and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God. Right? This is very obvious and open to the world that he blasphemes God. To blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So he rules the whole world. He makes war with the saints. And notice the saints don't win. He destroys. And many of the saints are killed. And so that's what they see. Despite all the miracles that he does, despite being killed and raised from the dead, they still follow him. Notice, they worship him. The people are ultimately deceived and God is going to send upon them a further, a strong delusion. And that's why you see, you see how important it is that though we're not going to go through this time, though this time is in the future, that the message to us is the very great importance of understanding what deception is. So that we're not deceived. The whole world's going to be deceived. As much, as much as it is now, it will be uh, many fold greater during that time. So, as God said, of, or as Paul said, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved in verse 10, 2 Thessalonians 2.10. 2 Thessalonians 2.12, they did not believe the truth but took pleasure in Adikia, unrighteousness or wickedness. So the deceived follow unrighteousness, which in turn makes them dull to the clear warnings from God. And that's why I opened with this uh, British government uh, truth, this history. You know, as somebody like Edmund Burke gets up in front of Parliament and says, "Look, we're all rushing headlong into destruction. Open your eyes and do something different." And they're all like, uh-uh. <laughs> they, you know, we're going to crush the colonies. And someone said to them, um, once we go over there and we beat them, if we beat them in this war, are we going to keep soldiers over there to run the whole country? You know, and they, they mentioned how many square miles the colonies were compared to, you know, how many troops would it take to, after we beat them, to actually stay here in America and run the place. How much money would that cost? How many troops would it take? You know, and people are like, huh, good question. Ah, let's do it anyway. That's basically what they did. Because they were, people were very clear to them about this. They were like, ah, let's do it anyway. They see what this Antichrist does. They hear his blasphemous boasts against God. They see his actions. They see his incredible pride. And yet, they still worship him. And they still follow him. Is it really about the miracles and signs and wonders that he has? Or is it just the fact that they are, without faith, a man or a woman, without faith in God, without faith in the gospel, will find themselves deceived more and more and in this case, the deception, which God is showing to us kind of the, the, on a platter here, is this is how bad deception can get. Do you want any part of this? Right? It's like showing a disease and then showing someone who has the, 
the, the highest form or the, the, or the highest level of such a disease. Like say, you know, a flesh-eating disease. And then you show pictures of people whose fleshes are complete, fleshes? Flesh is completely eaten off. And then you say, do you want any part of this? And that's what God is kind of doing to us here. Showing us how bad it will get. And telling us, you know, deception is around you right now. Do you want any part of that? As believers, we must recognize that sin, that's why we have to avoid it as much as possible. Can we avoid it completely? It's a false doctrine. We cannot be sinless, but we must be as sinless as we possibly can with God's power and help and grace, with confession and repentance in it all. As believers, we must recognize that all sin dullens our spiritual intellect. Spiritual IQ, you might want to call it. Sin makes us spiritually stupid. Sin is the result of deception. As James said in James 1, when it meets lusts or desire of the flesh, deception causes sin. As James says, they marry and have a baby who is sin, and sin prolonged causes death. God has given to us through Christ the ability and the desire to overcome <clears throat> to overcome ignorance, stupidity, fleshly lust, and desire, and to know that these things are against God. Right? Why should I not be ruled by desire? It's be, does it make my life bad? Yeah, but there's a higher reason. Right? It, it, when you know the reason, it, making your life bad doesn't even enter into the equation because you can be following righteousness and your life can get very bad, right? It's, it's called trial or undeserved suffering. So it's, it's not, for us, it's not the avoidance of badness. It's the fact that God hates these things. These things are against him. And now we, as believers, are with him. This Antichrist, you know, that's what his name is. Antichrist. He's against Christ. And what he's about, we should want nothing to do with at all. God's kingdom is coming, and his will will be done. <clears throat> so look at verse 8. We're still dealing, we show that these are unbelievers. Verse 8 And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone, now he qualifies this, John does. Not all who, were, who dwell on the earth, but a great majority of them. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life, in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So this is the book that contains the names of believers, and their names are not written in it. And this is a very definite way of saying that they're unbelievers. Now, as our passage says, uh, and I got it here, this last part in Second Thessalonians 2.12, that they took pleasure in wickedness. They didn't believe the truth, which means they're written in the Lamb's, not, sorry, not written in the Lamb's book of life. So they didn't believe the truth. They didn't believe the gospel, but took pleasure in wickedness or unrighteousness. And that is... The this word unrighteousness or wickedness is the deception of the Antichrist. 
So they enjoyed wickedness. And that's what the Antichrist is all about. Now, also is his right-hand man or aide-de-camp, which is a false prophet. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and and he spoke as a dragon. It comes up out of the earth. The first beast comes up out of the sea. This is the false prophet. And he spoke as a dragon. Verse 12, he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell on the earth worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell in the earth because of the signs which was given to him to perform it in it in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell in the earth to make an image to the beast who has a, who had the wound of the sword. And he, again, he died and has come to life, resurrected. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many, to, as many do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on, the, or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. I'm about to tell you I found a the secret to 666. You ready? I, I, I haven't. I'm just setting you up. Um, so this false prophet, or could be known as the second beast, is doing the same thing, same signs, causing people to worship. The, the result of not worshiping the image of the beast is death, and you, you have uh, unable to buy or sell anything. Um, and so they both will get judged. Correct. They both get tossed in the lake of fire in Revelation 19. Both the beast and the false prophet. Now, um, we might, on some level, want to sympathize with the unbelievers. Because that's who we're, we're not so much focusing on the beast today and, and the false prophet. Uh, but more so on mankind and why man can be deceived and why man is deceived. And there's a view to romanticism, which is a false conclusion. Romanticism is really, uh, since I'd say the 1700s, has really kind of taken over a great deal of human thought in the West. And romanticism is that, you know, everybody who is poor or destitute or, um, you know, not having an easy go of it in life uh, should be admired. Just for the sake of their having a rough time. You know, and that's not true. Some people are destitute and poor and, not, and having a rough time because they deserve it. And in other cases, it's not because they deserve it. It has to be decided on on a case-by-case basis. Um, but romanticism kind of lumps them all into one. You know, the masses of the poor. And they're all great. You know, or, or romanticism will say, the entire middle class are really great. Now, some of them are, and some of them aren't, <laughs> you know. Or romanticism says all the rich are wrong and horrible. 
But that's not true. Some are good. Some are bad. And the conclusion that comes from this that is false is that no one should be judged for their decisions in light of holiness. And this is a pervasive doctrine, uh, in, especially in the last hundred years or so in America and in Europe, in Christianity, where, you know, there is no hell. There is no judgment. There is no um, final judgment. But yet there is. Uh, what they do is they interpret the Bible allegorically. They'll say, well, it doesn't really mean that. It means this rather than saying exactly for what it says. And people will be judged in light of holiness. Uh, you and I, as believers, not eternally judged, but we know that we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be uh, recompensed for what we've done, whether good or bad. And that's not, in no way would we lose our, we can't lose our salvation, but we will be judged or evaluated for what we've done. And why is that? Because we have a holy God. And you can't separate that from him. So on one level, we might want to sympathize with these unbelievers. Because come on, folks. If they don't worship the beast, they get killed. So should we have sympathy? Well, in a way I do, because I would never want to go through the tribulation. But if I was there, and if you were there, you might want to ask yourself what you would do. I mean, if for whatever crazy reason we ended up in the tribulation, what in the world would we do? Would we take the mark? Because God warns, you take the mark, you will be judged by him. So look at it. First, um, we have to, they're going to die either way, right? I mean, everybody's going to die. <laughs> That's why you got pastors, right, to tell you these deep spiritual truths. Everybody's going to die. In the tribulation, a great many people are going to die. Some survive it, true. But even those who survive it, if they're unbelievers, Jesus comes at the second coming, and guess what? You're dead. So, eh, you know, you die in either way. So you can either die one way, or you can die another. And this is a good, important point for us as believers. Because I would think how you die is going to be a reflection of how you lived, isn't it? Somebody somewhere said something really smart about that. First, there's 144,000 who spread the gospel. We see them in, in Revelation here. In, uh, did I put them in this passage? No, I think I took them out. Uh, but in the, I think you'd see them there in 14.1, is it? That there's 144,000. They spread the gospel. Uh, they have, now think of this, 144,000. There are 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, each from each tribe. And they can't be hurt. So the beast, as we've just seen, and the false prophet, anybody who doesn't bow down and worship the image of the beast is killed. And yet, Here's a guy over here who's spreading boldly and openly and loudly the gospel of Christ. And anybody who does that gets killed. But he doesn't. And he's marching around all up and down the streets, through the square, through the towns, in the villages, 
preaching the gospel. And nothing happens to him. And he's bold. He's confident. And when you get up close to him, there's a mark on his head. And it's the name of the Lord. He has Yahweh Elohim, or I wonder if it's the same uh, insignia that the high priest wore, holy to the Lord, which was on a plate on his turban, and the high priest is holy to the Lord right there, a gold plate. Tattooed on the guy's head is holy to the Lord, or Yavah Elohim. And nobody can touch him. And the whole time, for years, we presume that the 144 at least there for almost the whole tribulation, if not the whole thing, for seven years, all over the globe, preaching the gospel. No one can touch them. On top of that, there's an angel that goes about the whole earth to every nation and every person telling them the good news of the gospel and warning the whole world that judgment is coming. Look, you can die one way or you can die another it is, and it's made clear. Now, we saw yesterday in Romans 1 that God has made clear himself, his truth, to the world. He said, they, I have made myself clear to the world in Romans 1.20. He said, I have, uh, uh, what is evident about me is to the whole world, but they exchanged it. My truth was made evident to the world, but they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now, I have made myself evident. And notice in the tribulation now. Look at 14.6. Revelation 14.6. I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. By the way, do you see gospel? Gospel, Romans 1.16, is the means by which mankind is saved. It is the salvation to all men, Jew and Gentile. An eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Does that phrase sound familiar? Because back in 13... Uh, every tribe and tongue where I'm looking for it. Should Debbie find it before I do? Oh, man, I thought I was going to turn right to it. And wow, there it is. No. Yeah. Well, he causes all on the earth to worship him in verse 13.8. And there's that same phrase is somewhere in here. And I'm being blind and slow-witted. Too slow-witted to find it. <clears throat> Every tribe, nation, tribe, tongue, and people all over the earth, everybody, is anyone excluded? No. And he said with a loud voice, not just the gospel, right? But now the warning in verse 7, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. Worship him. As very soon, for those who don't, those springs, that sea and those springs of water are going to be turned to blood. And no one's going to be able to drink from them. And many, many are going to die. So that angel's not alone. There's another angel, a third one, 
No, sorry, verse 8 is the next second angel. Another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. This is the great capital city of the beast. Fallen, fallen. And there's no hope, so they're warned. And here comes another angel. A third one in verse 9, then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark in his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So, in the first angel, we have, see, there's drinking in all three. You see that? In the first angel, in verse 7, we see the sea and the springs of water. Springs of water, right? Good, clean, running water that you can drink. That's from God. It represents the gospel. And the second angel is fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, and she's drinking of the wine of passion. That's what you don't want to drink, but that's what that's the deceitfulness of sin. Is this wine? It's intoxicating, meaning it feels good for a while until it bites. And it's a deception, the passion of immorality. God's holding back. Right? We're, we're partying here in Babylon. We're having so much fun. God would never allow anybody to have this much fun. We're having so much fun without him. Who needs him? All he does is restrict us. What a boring old fart he is. Sorry to say fart in church. Oh, I said it again. Uh <laughs> And yet, but that's what this is, that now they're drinking the wine of the passion of immorality. Then, in the third angel, is you're drinking something else. If you get, if you, anyone who worships the beast in his image and receives a mark in his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. This is something you definitely don't want to drink, which is mixed in the full strength of the cup of his anger, and he will and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Which means they'll be judged. He'll be judged by the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Right? Not, it's not partial. It goes up forever and ever. And none of us really like... I don't even like reading this. I don't like it. But yeah, it's a reality. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is not in secret. This is shouted by three angels, 144 indestructible witnesses. 144,000 isn't a lot to go all over the world, but when they're indestructible um, and empowered by God, and they're magnificent men as they're described. And, you know, so they're without excuse. So we see in here common grace. The truth is made clear to all. I I think for us, if as much as we don't like reading about eternal torment to unbelievers that are going to end up under the wrath of God, that um, if, if it's not real then the lies and deception and the sin and the evil and the human desire that is apart from God loses its evilness. Like if judgment is not, 
as real as it is and as horrible as it is, then sin doesn't become as bad as it is in our own hearts. And it's bad. Now, thankfully, we're forgiven, right? We're sinners and we're forgiven. Thank God. But when we start looking at sin, and I mean in any category, all that we looked at in Romans 1 yesterday, if we look at sin as, eh, not that bad, or if we have like the Catholic idea of some are really bad, but some are not so bad. They had the venial and mortal. Mortal were like, whoa, you know, you can't even go to purgatory. But if you have a venial, you know, you can go to purgatory. Um, which none of that is real. All of it's terrible. Terrible. And we've got to see that. Because when we see it, and we'll realize... Now, on the flip side, is how... If, if sin is that bad, and it is... How good is holiness? How good is the presence of our Lord? Just walking with Him and being with Him. So, to summarize, wickedness dulls good thinking. Right? These in the tribulation, uh, is God, God's warning in Romans 1, that... They are deceived. And in our passage, God sends an even further deception. And wickedness dulls good thinking. It quenches the desire to know the truth of a matter, and therefore the desire to seek for true answers is quenched. Hence, even for believers, I think for all unbelievers, when it comes to certain things, like, nah, I don't even want to know anything about that. Well, they'll tell themselves that they do know when they don't. The desire to know the truth is something that, on the flip side, goodness or the pursuit of righteousness. I'm talking about, not, not we're all righteous, imputed righteousness to us through Jesus Christ for all believers. But when it comes to, pers- for if, if it were true that all believers were in the pursuit of truth, are all believers in the pursuit of clear, lucid, truthful, biblical thinking? The answer is no. And that's because being righteous is no guarantee of good thinking. In Proverbs, it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. And the same is true for us. Wickedness dulls good thinking. The pursuit of righteousness opens up our hearts and minds. And to many things. It gives us energy. It gives us clarity. It gives us the ability to discern, to, discern, to perceive. And so, you know, all of it, each of us have to ask ourselves, in, in what area are we deceived if we are? We need to ask God if we're deceived because deception is monstrously terrible. Uh, in what area? Because all of us got to have some. Uh, you know, where am I deceived? Where is it that I need clarity? And show me. And if you pray that, and remember now, <clears throat> because I, I purposely put up here the desire to seek, because Jesus in teaching us about prayer. Because when when I see when I think of seeking, I think of of course the scripture. 
And first and foremost, seeking here for the solutions to whatever I, I, I need clarity on. And prayer. When Jesus taught on prayer, that's when he taught, ask, seek, and knock. When Jesus taught on prayer, he taught on the, the woman who was not getting a fair trial and she kept nagging the judge. And it's in that passage that he says, ask, seek, knock. He meant it over and over and over. Because as we seek and pursue, when we do that, we're going to be open to the answers. If we seek once and say, all right, you know, I prayed about that a year ago. and I don't know. I didn't hear anything that day. So I quit on it. I mean, it's God's way of revealing to us, do I really seek? Do I really care? Do I really, you know, want to search for the answers to the things that I need answers to? And if I do, I'll keep asking. If I do, I'll keep searching. And that's why God doesn't give us the answers like immediately. All right, there we go. Maggie's just learning how to snap and I've been like helping her practice. I'm not too good at it myself apparently. Um, but, you know, why don't we get our answers immediately? God is challenging us with seeking because even if you don't get all the answers, if you learn how to seek, that's kind of like teaching a man to fish instead of giving him a fish, that kind of thing. If you learn to seek, that's what you want to know. That you have that tenacity to keep seeking and searching and groping for the truth. That's what God wants in us. And if we seek, he says, we'll find. But he said, you've got to seek with all your heart. He doesn't play halfway games here. And so, don't be deceived. Find out from God, from his word, and from prayer any places that you might have deception. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the care that you have for us and that you clearly show us in your word the things that we need to know, warnings. We thank you for these prophecies that show us how bad things can really be when people are deceived. So may we no longer be, Father. Bring us clarity. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.